During the season of Advent, we are hearing God's Word found in two of the songs of nativity recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. The last two Sundays, Pastor Jonathan has taken us through Mary's song called the Magnificat because the opening word, my soul magnifies the Lord. This morning, we begin to look at the song of Zechariah, referred to as the Benedictus, because the first word in Latin is, uh, uh, it comes from, uh, the first word blessed comes from uh, the Latin, Benedictus. Um, and the prophet, the, the priest Zechariah, a Jewish priest who was serving in the temple, and you know, uh, I trust the backstory that's recorded earlier in Luke 1, now offers this song or psalm, in fact, a, a prophecy as well, on the occasion of the circumcision on the eighth day of his son John, whom we come to know as John the Baptist, and his public naming on the occasion of his circumcision. So now let us ask the Lord to bless and re uh, the reading and hearing of his holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in your love for us and in the great gift of your Son, in whose name now we ask for what you have promised, the Holy Spirit, for the spiritual illumination of our minds, the receptivity of our hearts, and the transformation of our souls so that we indeed might live in holiness and righteousness before you by the power of your Spirit under the Lordship of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. The Word of God, it is written, beginning at verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, power, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Zechariah's song extols and celebrates the goodness and the power and the faithfulness and the mercy of God particularly with regard to the fulfillment of God's promises to his old covenant people, Israel. Now, before we look 
at verses 68 through 75, the first half of the passage, which is our focus today. Before we look at that in specific detail, I want to point out the overall big ideas here in Zechariah's song. First of all, as is the case with Mary's song, the Magnificat, Zechariah's song is filled with Old Testament language, allusions to the Old Testament and Old Testament history. It is deeply, deeply rooted in the covenant relationship between the Lord God, Yahweh, and Old Covenant Israel. And so Zechariah begins, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Now that's a very specific reference to the fact that the one and only true and living God, the Creator and Ruler over all, by His free grace, His free mercy, chose to enter into a personal covenant relationship with a particular people, His people, out of all the nations of the earth, Old Covenant Israel. And in verse 73, note that Zechariah specifically refers to that covenant which the Lord in His grace sovereignly established with Abraham. There's also the reference to the house of His servant David. That is, King David, with whom God freely established a covenant, promising David that one of his own offspring would rule on the throne forever. So we have the Abrahamic covenant. Now we have the Davidic covenant. And that offspring of David, of course, would be the Messiah, great David's greater son, Jesus the Christ. And Zechariah celebrates the fulfillment of all that was promised, note it in verse 70, by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, who prophesied the coming of the Messiah. And says Zechariah, the fulfillment of these promises would mean salvation and deliverance from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And so what Zechariah is saying is that the whole history of the Old Testament and all of God's promises that were given to His people are now coming to this climactic moment in history when these promises of redemption will be fulfilled in history. Now, Old Covenant's history had always been a history of struggle against enemies and most often a history of subjugation, humiliation, and oppression by enemies. But it's important to note that Old Covenant Israel's conflict with her enemies began not and arose not in the days of David or Abraham or Moses. Oh no. But this conflict actually began in the Garden of Eden due to Adam's sin. And the conflict that arose between the seed of the serpent, that is, Satan, and all of his children, that is, his followers, and their continual warfare against the Savior and his people, his followers, the true church. But as soon as Adam sinned in the garden, God pronounced the curse upon the serpent, upon Satan. 
He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. That's the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's God's own prophecy of Jesus' death on the cross. That was God's promise that through a Savior born of woman, salvation would come, and that though that Savior born of woman would suffer a mortal wound by his death, he would utterly and ultimately destroy the devil and all his works. So in Zechariah's song, we have this celebration of the fact that all of the promises of redemption revealed to Adam and Eve and to Abraham and to David and to all the people of Old Covenant Israel through all the holy prophets, these promises of salvation were about to be fulfilled. Now, I said were about to be fulfilled. But, just like Mary's song, Zechariah's song is in the present perfect tense, as though these things had already taken place. Now listen again to Zechariah's prophetic present perfect tense. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation. Last Sunday, Pastor Jonathan pointed out that Mary sang with that same triumphant certainty. The Lord has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. Both Mary and Zechariah sang in the prophetic perfect tense as though every promise had already been fulfilled. Now what that means and means for us is that what God reveals in his word is as good as done. When God decrees something, it is inexorable, cannot be thwarted. His word is firmly fixed in heaven and his promise cannot fail. The God of truth, who is himself truth, cannot lie. And therefore, we are to accept and to embrace his word as the unshakable, unbreakable, fixed reality upon which we must place our hope and around which we must orient our lives. And, and please note that Zechariah sang of God's promises of redemption as though they had already been completely fulfilled when his son, John, was only eight days old. And the promised Messiah, the Savior, was still an unborn child in the womb of his mother, Mary. You see, the outward circumstances and situation in the first century had not changed. But Zechariah was not looking at the outward circumstances and, and situation, which was dire for the Jews of the first century. It was dark and dire. But Zechariah's eye was on the unbreakable promise of God. More on that later. So now let's look at some specific details in this passage. In verses 68 through 75, Zechariah is prophesying not about his son John, but about the Savior, the Messiah. 
He says that the Lord God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Jesus being of the line of David. Now, the horn of salvation is the image of the horn of a, of a, of a big bull or an ox. The horn signifies strength and power. Now, there really is something majestic and, and awesome about the protruding horns of a big bull or a ram or the, or the antlers of a massive moose or elk or deer. My fellow hunters and I love to see the big rat coming out of the thicket. It's usually the first thing we see. And we see those ears pinned back. As that dominant buck approaches a lesser rival. It's really cool. So this is battle imagery. It's the imagery of a Savior who will triumph over all His enemies. This is none other than Jesus Christ, who, in His human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, in His life, death, and resurrection, conquered our enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and hell for our salvation. And this reality will be publicly and eternally revealed when He comes again in power. And glory. And we should note also that this visitation of God for the salvation of His people through the coming of the Messiah was an act of His mercy. Verse 72, in fulfillment of His promises. It was not that we deserved such a visitation from God, not that we deserved to be saved from our sins, or that God in any way owed us His mercy. Mercy is mercy. Mercy cannot be demanded and cannot be deserved. The visitation of salvation in Jesus Christ was an act of God's free mercy to undeserving sinners who were and are helplessly and hopelessly held hostage by the power of Satan under the dominion of darkness, under the curse of death due to their, our, own sins. Only God in His mercy through Christ can save us. There's no other hope. And again, this, this mercy is shown not because of anything in us or due us, but simply because the Lord in His sovereign, free grace had sworn and established His holy covenant through the line of Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the offspring of the seed of Abraham, that is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That the curse of sin would be finally removed and the dominion of the devil would be 
forever destroyed for all who embrace Jesus Christ in faith and submit themselves to His reign over their lives. It was decreed long ago in God's covenant with Abraham. Now, this has direct implication and application to our lives. The the whole history of God's plan of salvation comes to its apex in the coming of Jesus Christ into this world. How can we neglect such a great salvation? Now, dearly beloved, let's be clear about this. Let us, let us resolve to reject all the sugary, sentimental, silly, secular, hallmark movie interpretations of the so-called meaning of Christmas. You know, Christmas means this, Christmas means that. What Christmas means is this. God has come into the world. He has visited us in the God-man Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and to deliver us from the dominion of the devil. And let me say, just in passing if I may, you will note in the advertisements you see how the world must steal from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what I mean. You got it? J.C. Penney. You seen the commercial? Joy, comfort, peace. J.C. Penney. Joy, comfort, peace. Where do you think they came up with that idea? They had to steal it. That's what Satan does. He steals the truth and sells it as a lie. Get it. Get it. Get it. Where does the world come up with these ideas? They come up with the ideas because the ideas have been revealed in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they want everything that the gospel will offer without Jesus Christ. So, last night, is it a Lexus commercial or some kind of a car where you can just lean back in the reclining front seat and experience comfort and joy? Comfort and joy. Right there in the front seat of your car. Where'd they get that idea? Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Get this. We need to get it. This is the world in which we live. Don't be immune to this. Don't be numb to this. Don't be dull and dumb about this. This is Satan and the beast. The beast. taking the gospel, twisting the truth, and selling it to you as a lie. Spit on it. Spit on it every time. Christmas calls us to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Christmas calls us into a reconciled relationship with the one and only true and living God of holiness and righteousness by the blood of Christ shed for sinners. Christmas calls us into a life of committed discipleship in which we live consciously every day before God in His presence in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Verse 75. You see, there's a moral and ethical component here. In verses 74 and 75, which is our response to God's mercy. Having been delivered from the hand of our enemies, Satan, sin, death, hell, we are called to serve God without fear. That is, without fear of Satan, death, hell, and any worldly enemy of God and His kingdom. So that in spiritual freedom, We might serve God in holiness and righteousness all our days without fear of what the world may do to us or say about us or what the devil himself might do to us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was born into this world to live, to die, and to rise again to set you free from the fear of death, the fear of evil, the fear of man, and the fear of the devil, so that you might serve God with joy in holiness and righteousness all the days of your life. But now I want to return to that point about both Zechariah and Mary sang their song of salvation in the present perfect tense as though it all had already taken place. This this has great application for us. You see, they didn't focus on their present circumstance and situation, which was dire in the first century, but their eye was on the promise of God with faith in His Word. Now, that is how we are to live in the present and how we are to face the future with faith in the sovereignty of God and the surety that He will accomplish everything that He has promised in His Word. 2020 has been quite a year. Well, the danger is that now when things are kind of crazy and unusual for us, we we might begin to doubt God or, or weaken in faith. Or push the panic button as though God were suddenly out of control because things hadn't gone our way. Let's put 2020 in biblical perspective. (laughs) Think of the history of Old Covenant Israel. After the reigns of David and Solomon, 1,000 to 900 B.C., well, there was political chaos, there was moral decline, there was spiritual apostasy, Then came the destruction of Jerusalem, exile in Babylon, and then domination and oppression by the Greeks, and then the Romans in Zechariah's day. Now listen to John Calvin's comment in a sermon on this passage. Quote, Anyone who saw the Jews' plight was bound to conclude that they had been wrong to hope in God and that his promise of a redeemer had been entirely vain. 
You see, that was the outer appearance of their situation in the first century. From the outside looking in, it looked as though, to quote Calvin, they had been wrong to hope in God and that his promise of a redeemer had been entirely vain. That's what it looked like. And then Calvin continues, and I want you to hear this. (laughs) This is really good. Zechariah counters this temptation to doubt and despair and supplies believers with the arms to overcome it by affirming that God retains his power but that our preoccupation with temporal affliction takes us far away from him. When I read that, I almost fell out of my chair because it seems that John Calvin's sermon on this passage written in the 1500s could have been written yesterday. God retains his power, but our preoccupation with temporary affliction takes us far away from him. Brothers and sisters, are you preoccupied with temporary affliction? That's exactly what Satan wants. Has your preoccupation with, with temporary affliction, political chaos, economic uncertainty, COVID-19, has your preoccupation with temporary affliction taken you far away from God? Has the dark cloud of distraction and doubt and despair fallen upon your heart and mind and soul? Listen again to what Calvin says in in his sermon on this passage. Despair and turmoil may surround believers. Nevertheless, God is in heaven. He keeps his promises and fulfills them when the time is right. Now look, if Mary and Zechariah could sing with such faith in God's promise of salvation, even when John was only eight days old and Jesus was still in the womb and the Jews were under the oppression of the Romans, what about us today? We have much more revelation than they did. Now we know, we know about Jesus' perfectly righteous life lived for us. We know of his sacrificial death for us. We know of his resurrection victory over death, an historical event which cannot be explained away. We know of his ascension into heaven and the outpouring of his spirit into our lives. If in fact there is real love, for God in our hearts and real repentance of sin and a real desire to live in grateful obedience with the hope of heaven burning in our hearts. This this is the inward evidence that Christ has saved us by his almighty power and sovereign free grace. And what has he promised us? He's promised us in his word that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has promised us that the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He has promised us that in the midst of all our suffering in this sad, sin-sick world, He works all things together for good, for our good so that we may be assured that nothing in all creation, not even death itself, will be able to separate us from his love, for even our death will be our gain. 
when we shall receive an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved for us in heaven. And he has promised that he will come again to judge the living and the dead on which day, great day, he will eradicate forever all evil. And all creation will be gloriously renewed and redeemed and everything sad will become untrue. And all who have loved him and trusted him will be together forever with him in his everlasting, all-glorious kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. Now those are God's unbreakable, unshakable promises, fixed realities by the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, sealed in the blood of God's own Son, and confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. And therefore, like Zechariah and Mary, we today, with faith in Christ, get this, we today may affirm in the words of Holy Scripture, in the present perfect tense, that in union with Christ through faith in Him, we have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We are seated together with Christ in the heavenly places. That is already in the eternal mind of God by the eternal electing decree of God in Christ, accomplished by Christ in His death and resurrection, applied to our lives by the working of the Holy Spirit. This is an accomplished fact, a fixed reality for all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ on which we must base our hope and orient our lives in the living of these days. Brothers and sisters, do not let preoccupation with temporary affliction take you far away from God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, be cheerful not fearful. Do not fear, but rather persevere. God cannot lie, and His promise cannot fail. So let's sing. Let's sing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. To Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the gospel of your Son, our great victor over the devil, sin, death, and hell. We pray, O oh Lord, the blessing of your Holy Spirit that we might live in accordance with your promise to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the glorious gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith as we say together the Nicene Creed, one of the ancient creeds of the church. It is sometimes referred to as the Christmas Creed, because we have in it 
um, a, a very deliberate and, and very clear statement of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And so I ask, Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all mortals, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under conscious fire. He suffered and was buried. On the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again to the Lord, to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together worship and glorify, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look at the resurrection of the dead 